Hey folks, thanks for checking out Missio Church in Manor, Iowa. You are listening to audio recorded at our Sunday morning service. If you'd like any more information on the gospel or would like to learn more about Missio Church, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Missio Mount Air. On November 18th, 1903, at the age of 20, my great-grandmother, Hedvig Johansson, crossed the Atlantic Ocean by steerage and made her way to Chicago after passing through Ellis Island. i got to show you this. This is one of the coolest things that we have as a family. On the screen, this is a picture of my great-grandmother's steamship ticket that she had at the age of 20 that my mom has hanging on her wall. This is one of my favorite possessions, and I don't mean to sound morbid, but I said to my mom, I want that. <laughs> like, just put my name on that, because I just think that is so cool. What a piece of history for our family. And when she arrived in Chicago, she settled down in the Swedish community known as Andersonville. She would meet a man named Levin Svensson at a community dance. Now, Levin has his own story, which I'll talk about at some point later, but little cliffhanger. I'm one phone call away from not existing. I'll tell you that later. Stay tuned. But the two would get married in 1912. They would have three sons and one daughter, of which one of them would be my grandfather. Here is a picture of Hedvig and Levin on their wedding day in 1912. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? My great-grandfather was a master gardener for wealthy estates in Lake Forest, Illinois, and Hedvig, or Hattie, as she was called, was a cook for the Ryerson family, who were steel magnates at the time. Through their hard work and their dedication, these two Swedish immigrants carved a life for themselves and for their children that laid a foundation for my mother and my brother and my sister and I. They came to America poor, looking for a better opportunity, and they established a family, they established a stable home, and a legacy of hard work and faithfulness in marriage. Over the last several years, my family and I, we've been sharing a lot of stories about our family history. We're doing this with with Dave and Betty Lou, we've also been doing this with with my mom and dad throughout the last several years, And, and as my wife and I, Tara, learn where we have come from, that we're, past, we're seeking to pass this heritage on to our own children so that they can see their lives in light of a lineage from which they come. See, knowing our family heritage, it's important. What it does is it roots us into something bigger. It helps us see our place in life, and it gives us clarity about who we are and what we're a part of. I came across a study that was conducted by Emory University in 2010 showing that children who know their family stories and their family histories have a higher level of emotional well-being and are more stable in understanding their own identity as a person. Marshall Duke, who is one of the psychologists who conducted the study, said this, quote, hearing family stories gave children a sense of their history and a strong intergenerational self. Even if they were only nine years old, their identity stretched back a hundred years, giving them connection, strength, 
and resilience. Tell your children and your grandchildren your stories. As important as it is to know our family history, I submit to you it is even more important to understand our collective history, to understand where we came from, why we are here, and who we are. These are the big questions of life, aren't they? I mean, they drive not only religious scholars from all faiths, but atheistic evolutionary biologists as well. We all want to know our collective history and the why that drives us. Giving a personal identity wrapped inside a larger purpose. There are many different, sorry, I'm getting texts from a new Iranian believer right now, and I thought I would, that's another story, but he keeps texting me. Sorry, I thought I turned that off. Okay, there are many different ways our society seeks to help us define this identity. What's confusing is the vast majority tells us that it is self-defined, that it is based on feelings, actions, and experiences. As a matter of fact, so there's a professor, stay with me for a minute, Hami K. Bahaba of Harvard University said this. Now, this is kind of a complicated phrase. I'm going to unpack it in a minute. But this type of thinking is what is permeating higher education. This is what's trickling down into all of our society. It's trickling down into high school education. We saw it a ton in New York. This is what he said. Identity, here's the big word, is never a priori. We'll get to that in a minute. So identity is never a priori nor a finished product. It is only the ever problematic process of access to an image of totality. I'm going to read that again. Identity is never a priori, which means it's, it's not something you can just know. A priori means it's knowledge you just know. You don't have to experience it. So for example, uh, a priori knowledge would be if I tell you one plus one equals one, you don't have to experience that one plus one equals, I'm sorry, one plus one equals two. You don't have to experience that. You just know it. I know what one is. I know when you put two ones together, that gives me two. So he's saying that, that, that identity is not something you can just know, but it is an ever problematic process. He's saying we can never understand our, our identity apart from experience that it's never a finished product, that the journey to know it is and of itself problematic. With this type of thinking, it really is difficult to define what personhood is. So many define personhood differently today. What makes a person a person? When does a person have intrinsic moral value? Is this the same for everyone? Who gets to decide this? For this, we turn here at Missio to the Scriptures, and the Christian faith for 2,000 plus years has turned to the Word of God. And I would have you consider this, who or what else is able to tell us these things if not our Creator? Of not only us, but of all things. If God is God, then He is the only one who can truly answer these gigantic and important questions. This leads to our first foundational point, which is massively important. God is the only one who can give us our true identity and purpose. This is something Darren talked about last week, and I'll be honest, we're going to look at the same passage of Scripture this week 
that we looked at last week. And it's not because I think Darren did a poor job. He did awesome. But as we talked about this, we thought this is such a critical issue. We've got to continue to talk about this. And so there might be some overlap between what I say and what Darren said, but we're going to build on it a little more this week. And then next week, Darren's going to look at Genesis chapter 2 in particular and how this continues to grow. Because this, uniquely to us in our history, is being undermined in significant, significant ways. And many in the Christian faith are more influenced by pop culture than the Word of God. And we've got to know this what God's word tells us about who God tells us we are and what he says our purpose in life is. Because if God is the only one who can give us our true identity and purpose, here's what it means. It means that our identity, that your identity, is not self-defined. It tells us that it is not an ever-problematic process based on subjective experience, but it is given to us by God himself. Again, I submit if God is God, if he is the maker of us all, does he not have the right to define this for us? And if this God is entirely good, which the scriptures tell us he is, that means the identity he has given us is good. And so we've come to the book of Genesis. For the last several weeks, we've been laying this foundation of Genesis. We've spent, if you notice, eight weeks. We're going to be eight weeks in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3 because we want to lay these big, important uh, foundation stones for us that the scriptures lay out that not only help us see the rest of scripture properly, but if we are Christians, it's how we see ourselves and life and others properly. Genesis was written by Moses and is concerned with origins origins of earth and mankind, origins of civilization, and as we will see, of one special family chosen by God through which he will bless the whole world. Today, again, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 31. And it is in these verses that we see God declare our identity and our purpose. So I'm going to read it for us today. This is the word of God out of Genesis chapter 1, starting at verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth <coughs> and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with its seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to every cre everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning on the sixth day. <clears throat> there is a change 
in verse 26 from all the previous verses before it. And that change is God going from declaring, let there be, to let us make. And it's an important shift which shows not only a hint of the Trinity, I believe, as Darren talked about, but it also that something significant is about to happen. In verses 26 through 28, we see the hint of this triune God who exists as Father, Son, and Spirit, not three gods, but one God with one purpose, one essence, revealing himself in three persons, that they initiate our existence. They name us man. They order us according to gender, and God declares it all good. Unlike everything else that has been made, only mankind as male and female are created in God's image. And it is here where our identity is found. And it is this. We are made in the image of God and represent him in the world. Like guys, that's your identity. We try to make it way more complicated, but I would say in us trying to make it more complicated, we have actually robbed it of its richness. We have robbed it of its depth. We have robbed it of the joy of living this out. But this is what God declares of us. We are made in the image of God, and we represent him in the world. Now, we're going to continue to talk about this. This image has been marred and broken by sin as we'll read about in chapter 3. We're going to spend a whole week just on chapter 3. However, this image of God in man has not been entirely lost in us. We are made in the image of God. This is our identity. Victor Hamilton, in his commentary, clarifies for us that in verse 26, it's not interested in defining what the image of God in man is necessarily, but it simply states a fact. To be human is to bear the image of God. There are many ways this is evidenced, but the implication of being made in God's image gives us unbelievable dignity and purpose. You see, in the ancient world, when this was written, they viewed only kings as being made in the image of God. What is written here was monumental for that time, and I would say continues to be monumental in our own time. You see, the image of God was not reserved for the commoner. Only, king, only the king was God's representative on the earth. But in this chapter, royal language is being used to show us something profound. God is saying that in his eyes, all of mankind is royal and represents him in the world. G.K. Beale, theologian G.K. Beale and Mitchell Kim write in their book, God Dwells Among Us, which by the way, read that book, it's amazingly rich, that we are not meant to point to ourselves, but to a greater reality. That as human beings, we are made in the image of God. Our presence is meant to usher in the presence of Almighty God wherever we go. Just like on our phones, we have apps. We have an icon for that app, and that app represents the power of what it represents. The Facebook app icon represents the power and world of Facebook. And when we look at that, we know intrinsically, oh, I know what that means. The same, this is the same. We are the image of God in the world. 
and we are to point to a much deeper, greater reality. We're not an end in and of ourselves. We point to the God who sees the beginning from the end. This means, like, feel the weight of this. This means every single person has value. There are no throwaways. There are no mistakes, regardless of age, color of your skin, whether you're in good health or poor health, whether someone has an extra chromosome or not, regardless of of economic status, education, or influence. It does not matter if your parents meticulously planned for you or you've been made to feel like you were a mistake. Whether a human being is in the womb or a hundred years old, we are all made in the image of God and therefore have value and purpose and we all point to a greater reality of God himself. This is why the church values human life. This is why we care so deeply about things like abortion. This is why we fight hard to make sure that we don't celebrate but fight against nations like Iceland that say we've cured uh, uh, we've cured Down syndrome. No, you've killed all the babies with Down syndrome. That is not right, and we cannot stand and we cannot celebrate that. This is why we stand against racism and sexism. This is why we should take seriously the dangers of things like pornography and human trafficking, which rip away the dignity of human beings by relegating image bearers of God to commodities or objects of pleasure or personal gain. Every human life has intrinsic value, and as Christ's people, we should value it all and seek to bring wholeness and justice wherever it is violated. And I'm not using that word in a progressive way but biblically just. This image is beautifully expressed in us, not only in a spiritual way, but also physically, as male and as female. God made our bodies. He made our physical bodies. We have souls that can never die, and we have bodies. When we are in the new heavens and the new earth in Christ, you will not be an ethereal spirit playing a weird harp on a cloud. You will have a body. It will be a new body. Praise God. Genesis 1.27 shows us that gender is a gift from God. It is not an accident of nature. God created in his image both male and female. And the wording of Genesis 1.27 makes it clear that both men and women carry equal dignity, equal essence, and both equally bear the creator's image. Both are his representatives on the earth. God did not create mankind genderless only to add it later. But from the beginning, he makes us male and female in physical bodies, which means that our bodies are not fleshly prisons containing our true selves. They are a part of our true self. And over and over throughout the scriptures, we see that how we treat our bodies and live in them matters. Because ultimately, how we use our bodies show, am I my own God or is God my God? Is something else my God? Have I substituted the truth of God for a lie and seek to conform my body to that? Or do I see God as God and I seek to conform myself to him? What we do with our bodies matters because God created our bodies 
and our souls to be joined together that both would be surrendered to him and find life in his name. Male and female are unique, good, and beautiful expressions of God's image. In our current world, there is so much seeking to destroy God's gift of gender. However, what Genesis 1 teaches is that both genders are made by God and are his gifts, and they are good. The way you were made is a gift. You are an image bearer. The gender with which you were born is a gift and is ordained by God for his glory and the good of our world. I understand this is controversial today. This would be counted as hate speech in Canada, what I'm preaching right now. I have pastor friends of mine in Canada that could theoretically be arrested for what I'm preaching right now. When I was in Syracuse, at Syracuse University and in Buffalo, these campuses would, would, would seek to, to kick me off for hate speech by declaring there's two genders because we have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. But what God has given us is good and it's beautiful. You may be struggling yourself or know someone who is struggling with their gender identity. This is not to browbeat them. I understand that sin has marred us and wrecked us. And we don't live this out perfectly. Yes, we are forever marred and there will be a struggle sometimes. A lot of times with our bodies and what my bodies feel and what my bodies want. Because I'm enslaved to sin. I want sin. Which is why Jesus so graciously says, unless you be born again. Because when you're born again, I'll deposit a new heart in you and work you into, my, into the image that I designed for you from the beginning. The struggle doesn't, doesn't show us that God made something wrong. The struggle shows us that something is wrong. We broke it and God is the solution. See, don't get caught into the trap of thinking that this is the way God made the world. God didn't make the world this way. It bears the marks of how he created the world, but it's broken, and God came to redeem it. God did not create a world where we would confuse gender. God did not create a world where we would destroy the image of God in people. I read an article by an atheist, and what he called, in, in, in that article, he calls Christianity a straitjacket on people and society because, from his perspective, it dogmatically seeks to conform people to a certain way of living over and against the freedom of individual choice. And I, in no way, want to come across as callous, uncaring, or dismissive of what others are experiencing in their journey to know who they are and where they fit. I do not want to make excuses for how sometimes this has been abused, but I pray that, that just because Genesis 1 is out of fashion, that even though some have abused the communication of it sometimes, it doesn't make it any less true. What God has made, he has made in his, infinite, in his infinite wisdom and his infinite goodness. And it is important for us not to forget his goodness. And in his goodness, he made us this way. As male and female, in his image, for his glory, and all good. Being made this way not only means we re represent him, but it also means that we were made to have a relationship with him in a way that is unique from everything else. Nothing else was made as an image bearer, only us. 
One massive implication of this is how we relate to God and how God relates to us. Genesis 2 will show more of this next week. But suffice it to say, being made in the flesh, we were made to relate to God with all of what makes us us. Our minds, our souls, our intellect, and our bodies. And every aspect relating to God under His loving care and rule. Genesis 1 is teaching a powerful and glorious truth about the identity of mankind. We as male and female are image bearers of God meant to represent Him in the world within the context of our relationship with God. This is our identity. And that identity has a purpose. And that purpose comes from God as well. Because as image bearers, we are called to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth. This is what Genesis 1 tells us. See, God was fruitful in the act of creation. His will was accomplished perfectly through His Word. God multiplied throughout the created order as He created billions of stars, plants, trees, oceans, animals, fish, birds, everything. We see how God filled the earth. He took animals in the air on land and sea and filled the earth with them. And in like manner, mankind was told to follow in this work as representatives, to be fruitful and to multiply, to fill it. The Creator made creators. This is fundamental to our understanding of what it means to be in the image of God. We are to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth specifically with more image bearers of God. This is what is being implied in Genesis 1. Genesis 1 chapter, uh, chapter 1 verse 28 is highlighting the unique partnership that comes from a male-female union and representing God by filling the world with more people who are his, who are his image bearers who faithfully serve Him out of the context of a relationship with Him and represent Him in the world. So what does this mean? Well, it means we have children. Fundamentally, that's what it means. We have children. God has given mankind that ability, and we should have children. This is something that is like... If you look at global birth rates right now, especially in the quote-unquote Christian West, which that's a whole debate in and of itself, we are not having children because we view them as an economic encumbrance. We view children as the, as the obstacle that gets in my way from fulfilling my best self. That is idolatry. We were created to create children. And God says, fill the earth with image bearers of me. Because mankind is not the scourge of the earth. Man, the earth was made for mankind. However, it is not just having children. It is also about training up those children in the ways of the Lord. To help them know and fear Him. To surrender their lives to God's big picture. To model parenting, for example, out of Deuteronomy chapter 6. Not only does it mean having children, which is what Genesis 1 is specifically addressing, but we also remember the, the larger story arc of the Bible. Sin has forever marred the image of God in people. It has broken His creation. It has separated us from Him. It has caused the, the earth not to be filled with image bearers. I'm sorry, not to be filled with worshipers, but to be filled with idolaters. 
And however, God is redeeming and restoring the image of Himself in man through the person and work of Jesus Christ. As we embrace Christ by faith, we become new creations. Recreated after the image of God in true righteousness and holiness, Ephesians 4.24 says. Essentially, that's what the image of of God is. We were created in true righteousness and true holiness, in true goodness and untouched by sin. And so everything we did was to proceed from that. That's been broken, but in Christ, it's being restored for all those who come to him by faith. Meaning, we go from rebellious representatives, from idolaters to worshipers who represent the true king to the world. The Great Commission in Matthew 28 to go and make disciples is directly rooted in what his work was set forth as in Genesis chapter 1. This is why we can't just root the mission of God in in Matthew 28. Jesus, as creator, was thinking about his desire for the world. This means we should be postured to be on mission with God and to carry the gospel message into the world. Just as there are unique partner, just as there is a unique partnership in the male-female union to fill the earth, there is also a unique partnership in the male-female union to be on mission in the world. In other words, we're to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth specifically by posturing our lives to see God's word take root in us and in the lives of the people around us in the children we have, in the people we disciple, and in the children and in the people we reach. Ultimately, we're not to carve out our own little nest eggs. If we are not purposeful to be fruitful and multiply in the lives of others for God's glory, the tasks of each day will just sweep us years down the road, and we will have spent the vast majority of our time on ourselves as opposed to God's higher calling. Even if we have children, the same can be true. Oh, can we idolize our children? We, carry, uh, we can very easily disciple them in the pursuit of self and against loving and representing God in the world. Oh, this is an epidemic among Christians. We need to help our children understand their God-given identity and their God-given purpose in the world, which has its foundations right here in these verses. And here's what you need to know, parents. Your children don't want this. Do you know that Proverbs, when it says, train up a child in the way they shall go and he will not soon depart from it, is not a promise, it's a warning in the Hebrew. And in the Hebrew it says, train up a child in his way and he will not soon depart from it. In other words, let your children follow their heart and they will never depart from it. Let your child decide what they're going to do and what they're not going to do and they're not going to depart from it. But we bend them lovingly, patiently, intentionally, carefully modeling the way to say love righteousness love righteousness see see those desires in you they're actually traps to kill you i want to move you towards where life is found and just because you don't want to do it i pray that you don't think that that means that what i'm bending you to is wrong i pray that you see that that desire in you is what is seeking to kill you this is seeking to give you life oh choose life that you might live Our God-given purpose is to be fruitful and multiply in the world, not to be self, or, uh, sorry, our God-given purpose is to be fruitful and multiply in the world, to be self-giving, 
not self-serving. As image bearers, not only are we to be fruitful and multiply, but we are also to subdue and have dominion over the earth. This is what God says. He makes us in his image, male and female, says be fruitful and multiply, and he's, then he says, subdue and have dominion. One of the important things the creation account teaches is that God not only created all things, but he rightly ordered all things. Everything was in a perfect state of shalom, which is wholeness, functioning as it should be, relating to one another as it should be under God's kingly rule. And under this perfect state of wholeness, this perfect state of shalom, God granted mankind the right to rule over his creation to subdue the earth and to have dominion over it in his image. You know, when God created the earth, the whole thing wasn't the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden was a place on earth that God wanted Adam and Eve to take and fill the earth with that, that it would be God's place where God's people dwell under his loving care and rule. Take what you have here with me, Adam and Eve. This relationship you have with me in this beautiful proto-temple called the Garden, and I want you to fill the earth with it. Steward it, extend it, fill it with image bears, worship me. This means that we represent God's ultimate rule and authority over all things by ruling over the earth. We were called to subject the earth to our rule, to be subject to us as we are subjected to God. The intent of subduing and having dominion was meant to be done in righteousness, perpetuating shalom throughout the earth, through faithful servanthood and stewardship, not to destroy it, not to be careless with it, not to act as if it's ours, but that we're stewards of something that belongs to God. However, instead of subduing creation and righteousness, we've subjected it to futility, Romans 8 tells us. Things are no longer as they should be. What was whole and ordered is now broken and disordered. But just as Christ's redemptive work restores the image of man for those who repent and believe, it is also reconciling all things back to a state of wholeness, a work that has been completed and awaits consummation. And so our work of subduing and exercising dominion is to bring shalom where brokenness exists standing on the perfect work of Jesus. We are called to have dominion over the earth, to subdue it for God's glory, bringing it under his kingly rule, not just to work our jobs and to grow our 401ks and set up time for me time. To fill every moment. We're we're, we're not to fill up every moment of our week with kids' sporting activities or to hunker down to keep the world out or to fill up our free time in the pursuit of pleasure or binge-watch Netflix hour after hour. Like the call to be fruitful and multiply is to be self-giving. We are called to serve in the local church, step into the brokenness of people around us. We are to help the poor, serve refugees, open our homes, foster and adopt children, be generous with our finances, stand up against things that destroy the image of God and man. We're to care for our environment and so much more in order to bring wholeness, ultimately pointing to Christ with a great hope for the day in which he will make all things new. See, we're not going to make all things new. He will. But we are to step out in righteousness 
to not just allow garbage to continue to collect around us, but to step into it. Blessed are the peacemakers. Peacemakers, that idea is blessed are you who step into where there's brokenness and bring shalom. Genesis 1 teaches that our identity is God-given, that we are the image of God, meant to point to the greater reality himself. It also teaches us our purpose, which flows out of our identity. We are to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth with more image bearers. We are to subdue it and have dominion over it, extending God's kingdom throughout the earth. And in Jesus Christ, our identity, which sin has broken, is restored. He came in the flesh to show us what we were supposed to be. He offered his body as a sacrifice on the cross so that the body of sin might be done away with. Three days later, he rose again to new life so that we can be made new and walk in that newness to find the joy and the security of our God-given identity. And in Christ, our purpose is restored. Christ's death also defeated the dominion of sin over the world. He broke its power in the life of his people, meaning that as his people, we can subdue the world in righteousness, starting in our own hearts, where we no longer have to have sin have dominion over us, but we can subdue our own bodies to righteousness. And from that, we can seek to bring and display God's glory around us. So I have just three questions for you. Number one, have you embraced Jesus Christ? In him, our relationship to God is restored. It will not be restored otherwise. And you will struggle and fight your whole life to carve out some identity that ultimately is going to be a rejection of the creator. In him, our representation of him in the world is restored. We are made in his image in true righteousness and holiness from which we live. That hope is offered to you now if you are not yet a follower of Jesus. Will you come to the feet of God our Savior, confess your sin, believe that he paid it all for you so that he can give you life? Number two, what or who do you allow to define your identity? Is your identity a problematic process based on subjective experience that is just continually frustrating you, or is it defined by the God who made you? Number three, whose purpose defines your life? Are you on mission with God in the world, striving to, fruit, to be fruitful and multiply? Are you surrendering your life to the greater purpose of extending righteousness to the world around you for the glory of God? Or is God just that thing you do once a week for an hour, hour, and 20 minutes? And I put the rest on the shelf, and the rest is mine, baby. And I spend my money for me. I plan my time for me. I'm certainly avoiding people that are projects because that, that's just an inconvenience in my life. Or do we say, no, if I seek to find my life, I want to lose it for his sake. And I want to be a part of his work in the world because that is ultimately why I exist. And whatever come what may, it's worth it. Have you embraced Christ? What or who do you allow to define your identity? and whose purpose defines your life. I pray, I pray that we are all at the
at the feet of our Savior. I promise you, you will not regret. Well, he promises you, you will not regret it. Because he's for whom you were made. Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of your Son. And God, we are, we are awestruck at who you are. We are amazed and thankful that you have revealed to us who we are and why we're here. That that doesn't have to be this crazy guessing game to figure out what's going on and what my life is to be about. And, but God, ultimately, all things can be lived out of our relationship with you and as we represent you in the world. And God, that is rich, it is deep, it is amazing, it is beautiful, and it is where we can truly find rest even in our work. And I pray that we as a church and we as individuals would find our identity solely in Christ and that our purpose would be completely surrendered to His. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.